Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 3, verse 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and your hearer is sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you again to our Sunday afternoon worship service. Another Christmas has come and gone. In the presence have been opened and maybe even already returned. The decorations are slowly starting to come down and the Christmas music has thankfully died down. And it's during this week, in between Christmas and New Year, that many people reflect on the past year, the the highs and the lows, the sorrows and the joys, the regrets and the blessings. And as January 1st approaches, it is for many people about hope for change. It represents a fresh start, a a new beginning, a chance to become a better person and to live a better, a healthier, a cleaner, and a kinder life. So millions of people around the world right now are starting to think about their New Year's resolutions. And every year, I I take a look at the top 10 New Year's resolutions for that year, and it's always more or less the same, just in different orders, perhaps. Do any of these sound familiar to you? Lose weight. Get organized. Spend less. Save more. Enjoy life to the fullest. Stay fit and healthy. Learn something new and exciting. Quit a bad habit. Help others. Fall in love. Spend more time with family. You know, about 62% of Americans make New Year's resolutions either occasionally or every year, and only about 8% of people are successful every year. Those are some pretty slim chances of success. So many people hope for change. So many people try to change, and yet so many people fail to change. Change is hard. Change is, many might say, impossible or impractical. 
You know, there's no better place to look at the theme of change, true change, than in the Gospel of John. A key theme in the book of John is newness. How does the book of John begin? Boldly. John 1.1, in the beginning, the, the same words as Genesis 1, but in Jesus, everything is different. Everything is changed. Jesus launches his ministry in chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana by asserting himself as the provider of a new celebration, a new wine. He institutes a new religion as he clears out the temple, effectively doing away with the old and ushering in the new. And here in John 3, which contains one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, Jesus describes in his conversation with Nicodemus the necessity of a new life or a new birth. You know, this idea of a new birth, it's come to mean something very different today than what Jesus describes it to be in his conversation with Nicodemus. Society refers to born-again Christians as almost a, a specific brand or a segment of Christianity. You know, born-again, it's, it's a very American term as well. It, it often refers specifically to American evangelicals who are passionate and open about their faith. These are, some might call, the holy rollers, the, the Bible thumpers, the Jesus freaks. You almost have your regular ordinary Christians over here, and then your born-again Christians over here. And I think that as a result, many who profess to be Christians kind of shy away from the term. You're never going to hear a Roman Catholic refer to themselves as, as, as born-again, but it's not just Roman Catholics. I remember not too long ago, before I was a pastor here, I was, I was talking to one of my coworkers about religion, one day during a particularly slow shift at work. And he was telling me that he was exploring Buddhism. And he had just started getting into it, and he loved the meditation and the chanting and how it brought him peace and calm. And then I told him that I was a Christian. And immediately, the first question he asked me was, are you born again? And I, I froze. I hesitated. I, I didn't know how to answer. I didn't want to say, yes, I'm born again. Although, that, it's true, but for, for me, I knew that for him, it was a loaded term. It, it contained a lot of negative and pejorative connotations. I didn't want him to peg me to his notion of what a born-again Christian is. You know, we've tossed the term around so loosely that we've lost sight of what an absolutely revolutionary and radical concept the new birth really is. Because I think that for John's original audience in the first century, they would have been astounded by this conversation. And it might surprise us too when we see what's really going on here. In this passage, we get to be a fly on the wall listening in on a private, backroom, late-night conversation between two very important people. And we, as we see time and time again in the Gospels, our expectations, our presuppositions are 
totally subverted and upended by Jesus. So I want to point you to three questions as we explore this encounter. Three simple questions. First, who is Nicodemus? Second, how does Jesus engage with Nicodemus? And third, how does Nicodemus respond? First, who is Nicodemus? Look with me at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The first thing we know of Nicodemus is that he was a man of the Pharisees. Now the term Pharisee as we know and use it today, it's very negative. It kind of encapsulates everything that modern society hates and finds contemptible about religion. What comes to mind? We think of corrupt, legalistic, arrogant religious types who are condemning and condescending. You know, no one today likes these guys. No one wants to be associated with them. But that wasn't the case in the first century. Who were the Pharisees? You know, this week, millions of Jews around the world celebrated Hanukkah. Are you familiar with the Hanukkah story? I remember growing up uh, here, a lot of Jewish friends. And typically, it's the Jewish people who have FOMO when it comes to Christmas, but for me, it was the opposite. Um, I, I, I loved the Hanukkah story, and I kind of wanted to participate. And some of them let me because my last name is Jew. Um, but it's a great story. It's, it's a story that I heard a lot of growing up. It's the ultimate underdog story. And it takes place in that time period between the Old and the New Testaments, about 167 B.C. And you have the archetypal bad guy, Antiochus IV, the king of the Seleucid Empire in modern-day Syria. And this guy was bad. And Judea at this time is part of that empire. This is before the Romans came in. And Antiochus IV, he makes it his personal mission to eradicate Judaism and to completely Hellenize all of the Jews. And that means forcing them to adopt Greek philosophy, Greek culture, Greek religion, Greek language. So how does he go about this? He does the most offensive things he can think of against the Jewish faith. He invades Jerusalem. He makes it illegal to observe the Sabbath or any of the Jewish feasts. He makes circumcision a criminal act. He burns all existing copies of the books of Moses that he can find, and then he kills anyone who opposes him. And then he does the unthinkable. He takes over the temple in Jerusalem, and he erects a statue and an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Then he orders that pigs be brought into the temple and sacrificed on the altar to Zeus. This guy was bad. And now as all of this is going on, in the midst of tremendous persecution and pressure to capitulate and assimilate, you have one group of Jewish leaders called the Hasidim. And they fought to protect and preserve the faith. They established these houses of prayer called synagogues. And they appointed leaders called rabbis to oversee them. 
They absolutely refused to compromise. And you know what they did? They, they doubled down on their faith. They doubled down on religious observances. They went even stricter. They formed a resistance led by Judas Maccabeus, and they engaged in guerrilla warfare. And after about seven years, they were able to take back Jerusalem. And Hanukkah celebrates the liberation and the rededication of the temple after the overthrow of the Seleucid monarchy. In the eyes of most Israelites, the Hasidim were legends. They were heroes. They were the bravest, most self-sacrificing men in the land. And eventually, when the dust settled, the Hasidim were split into two groups. One group called the Essenes. They wanted to withdraw into communes and to live as separatists to avoid any further dilution of their religion. But the other group, the other group committed to living among the rest of Israel and leading the Jewish communities. This group was called the Pharisees. They were revered for their heroism, their devotion to obeying the law of God as best as they could. And you know what? These guys stayed. They didn't leave. They stayed as ordinary members of their community. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, respected, revered. Among other things, this means that he is highly educated in the scriptures. He knows his Old Testament backwards and forwards. And he tries very hard to live in obedience to God's law, to set a good example for everyone to follow. And then John also tells us that he is a ruler of the Jews. So this means that Nicodemus is not just a Pharisee, but he is a leader, a member of the high council, the Sanhedrin consisting of 70 elders. He's the religious equivalent of a congressman or a senator today. So he's certainly an older man. He's distinguished. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. He doesn't want people to think that he's in any way endorsing or affiliating or associating with Jesus. But at the same time, He's got to find out what Jesus is about because Jesus is rocking the boat and he's making waves with the people. So why is Nicodemus coming to Jesus? You know, commentators are somewhat divided here. Some commentators think that Nicodemus is coming because he genuinely wants to know more. He's curious and he's seeking to learn more about Jesus. Other commentators claim that Nicodemus is coming to manipulate Jesus. Something that he's, he's just trying to cut a backroom deal with him, playing politics. And I think there's a little bit of all of these things here. I imagine Nicodemus coming to Jesus to kind of feel him out. See what he's all about. To, to take his measure of him. To get to know the real Jesus. And to see maybe if Jesus is willing 
to play ball, to, to play nicely, to maybe they can work together here. But what's obvious in this encounter is the power dynamics that are assumed by the original audience. Nicodemus is the elder statesman. He's older, he's wiser, he's established, gray hair in his 60s, a life of religious devotion and public service. Jesus is young. He's 30. No formal education, no social position, but he really is the up-and-coming young hotshot. He's kind of like the new bad boy who won't play by the rules. He's electrifying. He's unpredictable. He's doing things that people had never seen, turning water into wine, single-handedly clearing out the temple, speaking profound truths, drawing people to him. So Nicodemus comes in here, and the dynamic that he's trying to set here is this. I'm a religious expert, and I'm here to have a serious talk with you, young apprentice. He's not coming to seek Jesus' advice, but he's taking time out of his busy schedule. He's dropping by to offer Jesus some advice. And although he offers Jesus every courtesy, he says, Rabbi, he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Nicodemus uses the pronoun we, even though he's by himself. Why? Because he's reminding Jesus of who he is. It's the slightest of nods to his status. We know. Yeah, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. One of those guys. The heroes. The good guys. The experts. The leaders. So even though he's flattering Jesus, he's calling him rabbi, teacher from God, acknowledging some of the things that Jesus is doing, he's very slyly reminding Jesus of who he is. He's trying to establish the tone of the conversation right from the start. So how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus engage with Nicodemus? You know, one of the things I love when I read the gospel accounts is that no two encounters with Jesus are the same. Jesus so often meets people and he engages with them in a unique way for a specific purpose. For example, in John 4, the very next chapter, Jesus speaks with a Samaritan woman. And the way that Jesus interacts with her, it's so masterful because he says exactly what she needs. Jesus speaks her language. She keeps trying to have this theological debate with him, and he brings it back to water and thirst. And gently and he tenderly shines a light on her need and how he can fill it. In our passage, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in a totally different way. Because Nicodemus is in many ways the polar opposite of someone like the Samaritan woman. Jesus speaks the language that Nicodemus needs to hear. Nicodemus is a leader. He understands authority. 
He understands power, respect, and privilege. So we really need to read between the lines here because how Jesus engages with him is fascinating. Look with me at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now on the surface, this seems like a complete non sequitur. But the tone comes through in its abruptness. Jesus dismisses all pleasantries. He doesn't return the expected honors. He doesn't properly greet Nicodemus or accord him any due respect. Instead, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, Jesus says this quite often, truly, truly, I say to you. But in context here, there are hints of clear sarcasm. David Helm puts it this way. He says, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you here, it's as though he's saying, oh, really? Well, let me tell you a true thing or two because it's obvious that you don't have a clue. Jesus is challenging Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is the Pharisee. He's the expert of the law of God. He's a leader of God's earthly Israelite kingdom. But what Jesus implies here is this. Nicodemus, you're not even close. In fact, you can't even see it. Jesus asserts dominance in this conversation. He bears his teeth at Nicodemus. He flexes his muscles. And we see that Nicodemus is thrown off balance. He's perplexed. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into a, a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus, he kind of staggers back, and then he tries to regroup, and he tries to regain the upper hand. And he asks Jesus a rhetorical, sarcastic question of his own. He's kind of saying, well, that's stupid. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see the power struggle going on here? The chess match between two respected leaders? Well, Jesus pushes back harder. Jesus again says, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And if you thought Nicodemus' last response was short... This one's even shorter. Verse 9. How can these things be? It's as though Nicodemus has ceded control of the conversation to Jesus. He has no retort, no clever response. This great and respected figure is humbled. But Jesus just steps on his neck. He will not relent. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
He's saying this, you call yourself a teacher and you can't understand these basic, basic concepts and truths. And then in verse 11, Jesus pulls a Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Straight out of Nicodemus' own playbook, Jesus, while alone, uses the pronoun we. But Jesus' we is very different from Nicodemus's we. Because Jesus' authority, it doesn't come from a group of Pharisees. It doesn't come from a high council. Jesus uses the royal we, the Father and I. So the first thing that we see Jesus doing is he corrects Nicodemus' posture. Nicodemus understands leadership. He understands authority. And Jesus asserts himself as the sole authority to which Nicodemus must submit. Exilic Church, do we need to be reminded of this? Do we similarly need a posture adjustment from Jesus? I know living in New York City, it's all about performing and earning and doing and validating and proving. We like to be in charge. We want to control our own lives. We want to call the shots. And faith for many of us, it's often supplemental. If and when we have time, we will go to church. If and when we have time, we will read the Bible or pray. Or when we need something, we will go to God. But what Jesus reminds Nicodemus here is that there is a kingdom of God. A kingdom. What that means is God is not an assistant to be summoned when we need something. God is a king. Do we need Jesus to remind us of who he is? Perhaps we do. So Jesus responds to Nicodemus in strength and power. But you know what? There's also so much grace. We see Jesus doing something else here. Even though he's speaking in a harsh tone, he's speaking to Nicodemus in code that Nicodemus will be able to eventually decipher and understand. You know, Nicodemus, he's rightfully puzzled at what Jesus is saying. He doesn't get it, but Jesus is not just speaking nonsense to him here. I wish we had more time to break down exactly what Jesus tells Nicodemus. But the short story is that Jesus has given Nicodemus a puzzle to solve in code that Nicodemus will understand. So let me give you an example. If I just started right now to talk about Yoda conditions, common law feature, rubber ducking, or reality 101 failure, 90% of you would have no idea what I'm talking about. But I know there are like three programmers who just woke up and got really excited. 
Jesus speaks code. He speaks the language that Nicodemus needs to hear. Because if Nicodemus knows one thing really well, it's the Bible. And Jesus just happens to be the author of it. What Jesus does here is he sends Nicodemus on a biblical scavenger hunt to gather the pieces that will fit together to show the whole picture and to tell the whole story. And Jesus does it so casually. He, he does it so subtly. He just, he just drops it in there in a way that you and I would probably miss. But not Nicodemus, the expert. He would not have missed it. Jesus gives Nicodemus four puzzle pieces here. There are four Old Testament references that he just drops into his conversation with Nicodemus. And I'm, I'm just going to mention them real quick. We don't have time to go into them. Puzzle piece number one. In verses 5 through 8, Jesus is referencing Ezekiel 36 and 37. In Ezekiel 36, God says, I will cleanse you with clean water. I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And then Ezekiel 37 is the famous passage about the valley of dry bones that come to life. And the message for Nicodemus is this. God has to do it all. You cannot clean yourself. God has to cleanse you with water. God has to take out your heart of stone, and he has to put in a heart of flesh. You're like dry bones. You can't do anything unless God, through his spirit, breathes life into you. This is a message that Nicodemus needs to hear. Nicodemus, all of your accomplishments and successes, they count for nothing. This is not performance-based at all. It is entirely grace-based. You're no further ahead than anyone else. You're no better than anyone else. Puzzle piece number two. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The ascending and descending, it's a reference to Jacob's ladder or staircase in Genesis 28. If you recall, Jacob has a dream in which he sees angels ascending and descending on this stairway to heaven, and God is standing above the staircase. Jesus tells Nicodemus that it's not about him performing, climbing the ladder to God, but that the Son of Man has descended to him. You know, in other religions, you work to earn your salvation. The five pillars of Islam, the eightfold paths of, of path of Buddhism, the cycles of reincarnation until you finally reach enlightenment in Hinduism. You have to ascend the ladder. But only in Christianity does God descend to save you. He does all of the work on your behalf. And I think that this is the alarming thing about this conversation. This puzzle piece shows that it is possible to do everything you possibly can when it comes to faith. You can go to church. You can get involved in church. 
You can read your Bible. You can pray. You can try to be good. You can avoid sin or, or get rid of bad habits. You can be kind to others. You can work hard. You can live a good life and still not be even close to being in a right relationship with God. Nicodemus did everything right. And yet, Jesus says, you can't even see it. Puzzle piece three. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this is a direct reference to Daniel 7. In the book of Daniel, if you recall, Daniel has these visions. And in one vision, he sees someone like a Son of Man standing before God. And he is given an everlasting dominion, kingdom, and power over all peoples, languages, and nations forever. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's telling Nicodemus, hey, Nicodemus, remember that guy that Daniel saw? The one with an everlasting dominion over all people? I'm that guy. That's me. And I've descended to you. Final piece of the puzzle. It comes, uh, it completes the picture. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is a reference to an obscure incident that occurred when the Israelites were in the wilderness. We, we talked about this in our community groups a few weeks ago. But in Numbers 21, the people of Israel are complaining about the conditions in the wilderness. Even after God miraculously provided manna every day and, and water, uh, they still complain to Moses. They, they say, Moses, we hate this food. We hate it. So what does God do? Well, God sends fiery serpents to infiltrate the camp. And they're called fiery serpents, not because they're on fire, but because when they bit you, you felt like you were on fire. Sweats, fevers, excruciating pain, and then death. Many people died. And the rest of the people, they repent and they confess their sin. And then Moses prays for them, and then God prescribes a very strange cure. He tells them to make a bronze serpent, to wrap it around a pole, and to lift up the pole. And whoever would look at the bronze serpent would live. It seems almost kind of cruel and sadistic of God to make an image of the curse be the actual cure. So why does he do this? And the people of Israel, they probably had no idea why God did this. Moses himself probably had no idea why God did this. But 1,500 years later, Jesus just slides this into his conversation with Nicodemus. He just drops the reference for him. And doesn't qualify it at all. The Son of Man would become the bronze serpent lifted up. The Son of Man would become the curse that would become the cure for all who looked at it. Salvation would come to those who looked to the Son of Man 
who would be lifted up. Now, Nicodemus at this point, he has all the information he needs. It's embedded in biblical code. He just needs to piece them all together. And we see that in the case of Nicodemus, his response to Jesus is not immediate. He has to examine every piece of the puzzle. He has to think it through again and again. But what's fascinating is that John mentions Nicodemus two more times in his gospel. In John 7, just when things are reaching a boiling point between Jesus and the Jewish leadership, Nicodemus takes a public stand defending Jesus. I mean, here in John 3, he sneaks in through the back door to see Jesus in the middle of the night. But in John 7, he risks his reputation and status by speaking in support of Jesus. So we see that things are beginning to change for him. And we don't hear from Nicodemus again until John 19, where John places Nicodemus at the crucifixion. Joseph of Arimathea, if you recall, comes to take the body of Jesus for his burial, and Nicodemus comes with him. But he doesn't come empty-handed. He brings with him myrrh and aloes to preserve the body. And John tells us it weighs 75 pounds. This was a task that nobody in his position would ever do. Touching a dead body would make you ritually impure. So these tasks were often relegated to Gentiles or slaves. But Nicodemus comes to do this himself at tremendous risk to his safety. You know, Nicodemus must have left this conversation in John 3 with his head spinning. What is going on? What does Jesus mean? What do these puzzle pieces mean? And you know what? He might have worked his way through the first three pieces and understood them. But I don't think he fully realized what the fourth piece meant. How could you? So I imagine Nicodemus coming to the cross to take the body of Jesus. As he approaches Golgotha, and he lifts his eyes to Jesus, he gets it. He sees the Son of Man lifted up, just like the bronze serpent in the wilderness. As Jesus hangs on the cross, Nicodemus understands how Jesus became the curse, which would be the cure. Jesus is no longer a teacher for him, but a savior and king. I want to ask you today, because the same four puzzle pieces are given to you, how will you respond? Who is Jesus to you? As we approach the new year, I hear Christians make New Year's resolutions about their faith all the time. This year, I'm going to read the Bible more. How many Christians every year get started in Genesis and make it halfway through Leviticus before they give up? This year I'm going to pray more. This year I'm not going to miss church. That's great. 
And I hope you do it. But let's be careful not to make faith about what we do. Verse 15, whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. I want to encourage you to make this new year not about doing or performing, but looking and believing in the Son of Man who has descended to you and then was lifted up on the cross to become the curse that would be your cure. Look to him in the new year. If you have yet to commit your life to Jesus, I plead with you, do not delay, but look to Jesus and be saved from your sins. And if you do believe, spend this new year looking to him, finding in him true change. You know, rather than trying hard to change yourself, look to him and let him transform you as only he can. Let's pray together.